Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Pactum. This is Pat Abendroth, and I am once again doing a Lone Ranger episode. A fiery horse with a speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty Ohio silver. The Lone Ranger. Mike Grimes isn't with me. It's Lone Ranger episode time. Mike will be returning. I have it on good authority, but now and then we need to do episodes alone, and so we're doing Lone Ranger style today. When I say Lone Ranger, it gives me fond memories not only of my childhood, as I mentioned last time, but also I'll say it gives me fond memories of my own children growing up because I bought the DVDs at one point in time, and we would watch them at night and get a chuckle, and I was able to introduce them to things that I loved oftentimes what parents like to do. But I did find it interesting years later to listen to the Lone Ranger because it was fascinating to me how often he quoted the Bible. And it was also interesting, which I found good. It was also interesting that sometimes he would say the Bible says in his great Lone Ranger voice, and he would be quoting something other than the Bible. It would just be, you know, sage wisdom or something like that. So kind of strange. Hollywood sometimes gets it right, but oftentimes gets it wrong. Today we're going to do part two on the active obedience of Christ, the active obedience of Christ, something that is crucial, fundamental, essential to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Last time we looked at the meaning of the active obedience of Christ. We also talked about what God requires, which is why we need the active obedience active obedience of Christ. He requires perfection uh, to his law, perfect obedience to his law. Then we finally last time looked at biblical support for the active obedience of Christ. So today we're going to wrap things up. I'll review in just a moment, but we'll wrap things up and we'll look at the historic and contemporary affirmations of the active obedience of Christ. Then we'll talk about objections to the active obedience of Christ. And finally, and briefly, we'll talk about just why it's so important. It's vital. We have no hope without it, to quote J. Gresham Machen. So first of all, remember when we're talking about the active and passive obedience of Christ, really there's one obedience, but we're looking at Christ's life and work from two different angles or from two different perspectives to better appreciate it. The passive obedience of Christ is in reference to the suffering, passive suffering. When you hear passive, think suffering from the Latin Passio, where we get passions, uh, the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Christ. Passive obedience of Christ is in reference to suffering, and the active obedience of Christ is in reference to the positive upholding of God's law. So, passive suffering, active upholding, if we can get that straight in our minds, we're going to avoid a lot of confusion. Sometimes, as I said last time, friend and foe look at things chronologically and they wrongly say uh, his life was a life of obedience and then the cross was the suffering. The reality is, even according to the book of Hebrews, he suffered throughout his whole life. So all of the time he was on planet Earth, he suffered. He was acquainted with sorrows and grief as a member of the human race, and then ultimate suffering. It was all leading toward death, even death on a cross he suffered. But even there, according to Philippians chapter two, he was obeying. So obedience on the cross, 
uh, obedience through his life, suffering through his life, suffering on the cross. But we're looking at these from two different perspectives, two different, or his whole from two different perspectives, two different angles, so that we can have a greater appreciation of his work on our behalf. So talking about the active obedience of Christ, we could do a series on the passive obedience of Christ, but we're not doing that at this point in time. Now we come to our next section, which is going to be number four of six, number four, the history of the active obedience of Christ. The categories existed before the Protestant Reformation when it came to studying the work of Christ, but it really becomes significant when we step into the Protestant Reformation because there's this close consideration of justification and how God justifies the ungodly and what that looks like according to Romans chapter 4 verse 5. So the theological designations, active and passive, took on a distinct meaning and significance for Protestants. So with Rome insisting on a synergistic, a working together uh, between God and hum human beings, a synergistic salvation where faith in Christ and the faithfulness of sinners might, notice, might lead to eternal life. We have Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, and those who followed insisted that the work of Christ was the only sufficient means for meeting the divine standard of righteousness. How can the standard of righteousness, righteousness be met? Only Christ could meet the requirement. Faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone became the Protestant touchstone. Therefore, for the Lutheran and the Reformed, the positive upholding of the law and the corresponding removal of guilt were essential for eternal life. Now, we should note that the, spe the specific ways which Lutherans and Reformed formulate their understanding uh, are different, but they both saw that we had to have Jesus positively upholding the law and that that was vital for the imputation of righteousness, and therefore that was vital for justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So when we consider confessions and Protestant confessions, the standards affirm the active obedience of Christ. The ones that do, the Lutheran Book of Concord, 1577, the Belgic Confession, 1561, Westminster Confession, 1646, Savoy Declaration, 1658, Second London Baptist Confession, 1689. Uh, they're confessional standards because it's articulating something that's not novel. These are standard doctrines and the active obedience of Christ were considered standards. These are vital. These are crucial. These are important. And complementing the confessions were catechisms, such as the Heidelberg Catechism in 1576. It says this, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. End of quotation. A really great way of saying it, and I say it causes me to want to praise God, and I hope it does you also, dear Pactum listener. Then if we move on, we can sample some of the different prominent individuals who affirmed it. So we have Martin Luther, who's an obvious one, uh, who is so riddled with guilt and so 
affected by God's requirement of righteousness that he finds himself as he's told again and again by his mentor to just love God more and just to love God better. And he gets to the point where he blows up and says, I don't love God. I hate God uh, because he knows he cannot keep the standard. And so that's a good perspective when you think about eventually you tap out and say, if that's the requirement, I can't do it. And even though we would never want to tell anybody to hate God, it was a step toward the right direction in the life of Martin Luther. Luther had been a part of a religious system like so many before and after that replaced God's standard of perfect righteousness with its own So, dear listener, think in terms of Romans chapter 10, verse 3, which teaches that ignorance of God's righteousness leads sinners to come up with their own standards of righteousness. In other words, new laws. And this then keeps them, actually, it keeps them from actually coming to God through the righteousness he provides, the one, the the righteousness that he provides through Christ. So it's the study of scripture that led Luther to recognize that the actual standard of God is perfect adherence to God's law, perfect righteousness. It leads him to despair, but despair then leads to him looking to the righteousness provided by God in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then if we want to move on, we can move on, as you might predict, to John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. And there is evidence from Calvin's writings that he affirmed the act of obedience of Christ. Uh, So it's not only a Lutheran doctrine. According to Calvin, justified by faith is he excluded from the righteousness of works, grasps the righteousness of Christ through faith and clothed in it appears in God's sight, not as a sinner but as a righteous man. Therefore, we explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Then John Owen, 1616 to 1683, he's the English Congregationalist and notable advocate for active obedience of Christ. He defends it extensively. It's in his book, The Doctrine of Justification by Faith Through the Imputation of the Righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated. Yes, that's the title. How good is that? Owen positively articulates the doctrine, thoroughly answers its objectors, including Robert Bellarmine, Faustus Socinus, and Richard Baxter. So it's it's this Wonderful statement. It's with cherished delight that Owen writes, the sin was made his. He answered for it. And the righteousness which God requires by the law is made ours. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, not by our doing, but by his. This is that blessed change and commutation wherein alone the soul of a convinced sinner can find rest and Peace. Not to be outdone, the Baptist friend of Owen and author of the famous Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, wrote the book Justification. Here's another good title Justification by an Imputed Righteousness or No Way to Heaven but by Jesus Christ. Mike, what do you think of that? Oh, wait a second. Mike isn't with me. I'm alone today. Creature of habit. Bunyan wastes no time in declaring his intentions with this opening proposition to that book. Get a load of this, Pactum listeners, that there is no other way 
for sinners to be justified from the curse of the law in the sight of God than by the imputation of that righteousness long ago performed by and still residing with the person of Jesus Christ. So time doesn't permit us to keep going on and on, but those four luminaries uh, that we respect uh, trans-denominationally, so to speak, I think serve as a, a fitting example from history. So we look at the confessions, we look at the early reformers, we look at the confessions, we look at significant Christians throughout the ages, and I'll just use one from our day that so many of us have appreciated, and that would be R.C. Sproul. Aware of the many assaults against it, here's what Sproul declared. If we take away the act of obedience of Jesus, we take away the imputation of his righteousness to us. If we take away the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we take away justification by faith alone. If we take away justification by faith alone, we take away the gospel and we are left in our sins. One of the highlights in my Christian experience was my graduation from the Ligonier Academy. Uh, and I had finished my dissertation and uh, defended it and gone through all of those things. My wife, Molly, and I went to Orlando for the graduation at St. Andrews. Earlier in the day, Stephen Nichols had told me that RC, and he was uh, not, not well at the time, but he said, you know, uh, Dr. Sproul seems to be doing, doing well today, and I think he'll make it for the graduation. We're certainly hoping and praying that he, he'll be able to make it. And so that encouraged me, and I know Steve told me because he thought it would encourage me, and it did. So we show up to graduation, and all kinds of pomp and circumstance. They have bagpipes playing, and uh, the procession is, is its just cool. It's a great experience, uh, a high point for me. I wasn't able to sit with my wife, Molly, because I was with those who were graduating. Um, so that'll become relevant in a moment. So we walk in. R.C. was already on the stage. Uh, he had a wheelchair at the time. He's on oxygen. And so he's up there. So I walk in first, obviously, with a name like Abendroth, um, like Abendroth. And so I go sit down like right in front of R.C. and Steve Nichols. And everything goes well. Everything's nice, positive, all that. But R.C. gets up to the pulpit, needs help gets up there. It's emotional for everyone, certainly for me. And he proceeds to preach on the significance, you might guess, of the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And I sat there and the tears just rolled down my face. Tears of joy. I was so happy because a significant part of my research for my dissertation had to do with the act of obedience of Christ. And so it was such a fitting, perfect, providential culmination to all the work. And I was sitting there hoping that my wife, Molly, was putting the dot, connecting the dots and realizing just how significant it was generally, but for me. And so when, when everything was done, she came over to me and gave me a big hug and, and said, she loved me and congratulations and something along the lines of, isn't the, isn't the Lord good to give you that sermon? And so that made me all the happier that my wife was, was tracking with all that was happening. So RC was a big promoter and defender of the active obedience of Christ. And I'm so thankful that he was RC is not the only one to promote the active obedience of Christ in our day. There are other well-known writers, people like Michael Horton, Sinclair Ferguson, Jerry Bridges, who is now in heaven. Uh, I even heard John MacArthur on CNN on Larry King, King live promoting the active obedience of Christ and was very thankful for that. 
And now we come to objections, objections to Jesus and his active obedience. I like to put it that way because these are objections, not just to the active obedience doctrine. I think it is. These are, these are actually objections to Jesus and his active obedience and objections come from various theological camps uh, and they come in different forms, but to paint with a broad brush. In fact, I don't even think I'm painting with too broad of a brush. I would say this, and this is important. Those who reject the doctrine of the active obedience of Christ tend to either a deny justification sola fide, or at best they are weak when it comes to upholding the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. I realize that's controversial, but since it's directly related to the doctrine of justification, if you deny it, you may very well, hopefully you still affirm justification sola fide, but at best you're going to be weak when it comes to that doctrine because by definition, the two are related. They are justification sola fide is based upon the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is based upon his obedience to the law as our substitute. So this makes this a huge deal. This is an extraordinary matter and it should be taken with extraordinary seriousness. In addition, we should note that oftentimes objections to the active obedience of Christ end up not being objections to the active obedience of Christ as an actual doctrine. It's against something other than what the actual doctrine is, which takes us back to how we started. We're not dealing with chronology. It is not that Jesus obeyed the law perfectly and then suffered at the end. No, he suffers throughout his whole time on earth and he obeys throughout his whole time on earth, including on his cross at Calvary. So oftentimes people are, and I'm not trying to be insulting, but oftentimes people are ignorant about what the doctrine actually is. I know of someone I've had great dialogue with them or lengthy dialogue where they'd never heard it before. They considered themselves to be a mature Christian and theologically astute, but very sheltered, I would add. And so of course they rejected it. And then they rejected actually a caricature of it because they were so defensive given the fact that they'd never actually even heard about it before. So I have a whole long laundry list of objections that we need to work our way through. And we'll begin doing that now as we start with it's rejected by those who believe that justification is by faithfulness in some sort or another, in some way or another. There are those who name the name of Christ who do not believe in justification sola fide. Uh, they believe in justification somehow through faithfulness. What God does, what we do, we work together, uh, not in a monergistic kind of way as Protestants would affirm and Reformed theology would affirm, but some sort of synergistic working together partnership with God. The obvious one here would be Roman Catholicism. I won't say a lot about that here, but they, they would reject it for obvious reasons. But we can move past it to other forms of semi-Pelagianism, including Arminianism. We could also talk about those who promote what's so supposedly called or is called the new perspectives on Paul. People like N.T. Wright would believe in a form of justification by faith and works, i.e. faithfulness. And so he is not going to like the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness as our substitutionary lawkeeper and others who would be like him. There are also those who've been associated with 
theonomy, uh, like Sandlin, Andrew Sandlin would reject this doctrine insofar as I recall reading his writings, and there are others as well. But let's move beyond the obvious, and let's move on now to another group that would reject the active obedience of Christ, uh, and that would be someone who I would call a neo-nomian, new law that's easier to do because God's grace somehow enables us. And an example of such a person would be Richard Baxter, 1615 to 1691. He's written several pretty influential books. The one I know best is called The Reformed Pastor. And I would say it should be called The Anti-Reformed Pastor because he promotes something other than Reformed theology. He's the neo-nomian pastor. He sought to bridge the gap between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. John Owen spent no small amount of time refuting, rebutting, arguing against the false doctrine of Richard Baxter, no fan of the active obedience of Christ, and really no fan of, in a pure sense, sola fide because of that. We move on now to another group of people or other individuals who would reject the act of obedience of Christ, and that would be those who would say, well, the act of obedience of Christ can't be true because it's, it, it diminishes the significance of the cross. I've heard this so many times, I can hardly believe it. There are those who say, well, if that's the case, then you're taking away from the cross because you're putting emphasis on his life. And by way of pushback, I hope Pactum listeners are being wise and discerning here. We would say, actually, no, the cross is part of his act of obedience. We've been talking about this. Philippians chapter two, verse eight, even death on a cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That actually is part of his act of obedience. So sometimes it's misunderstanding or caricature because people don't actually even understand what the issues are. Hopefully, if you're one of those people, this is helping you. I realize I'm being a little bit polemical here because uh, I have my dander up because this is so devastating to people when they can't have true legitimate assurance because they don't understand that Christ fulfilled the law on their behalf. Jesus suffered his entire time on earth. Uh, that's suffering. He obeyed his t entire time on earth. That's the act of obedience. Both are vital. Both are crucial. Now, in addition, while the cross work of Jesus is vital because it is, it is not to be viewed in isolation. If this sounds blasphemous, I, I just want to point out to you the fact that we have this thing called the resurrection and the resurrection is vital. It's all vital. The resurrection is so important that the Bible says that Jesus was, and I quote Romans 4.25, raised for our justification. The work of Jesus is a whole and every aspect is vital. Interestingly enough, it is at his resurrection where Jesus is said to be justified. Uh, ESV says vindicated, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, but it is the exact same word for justification. You can see our episode on the justification of Jesus. So why is Jesus justified? He is justified because he is officially declared righteous, officially declared the perfect keeper of God's law when at his resurrection, because, because he is in fact righteous. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. But given that Jesus never sinned and always obeyed, he had to be raised and he was raised. It is because of the perfect obedience of Jesus that he was justified. And so it is with all who are united to him by faith. Salvation is due to the work of God in Christ because of Christ's substitutionary life, death, 
and resurrection. Another objection to the act of obedience of Christ is that it's not vicarious. It's not in place of, it's not substitutionary. It's only qualifying. And I alluded to this earlier in this series. And some, some say this, some say that Jesus perfectly obeyed, but not as a representative. He obeyed so that he could qualify as the lamb without blemish, who could atone for sin and bring forgiveness. And this is true. It is true that Jesus was the spotless lamb of God to take away sin, but this is not an either or it's a, that would be a false choice. Jesus was both sinless and positively righteous so that atonement and the imputation of righteousness would be certain. Jesus did what he did so that sinners would be forgiven as well as have the righteousness that God requires. This comes by faith in the one whose obedience secured it. Philippians chapter three, verse nine, Romans chapter five, verse 19. Still another objection is to suggest that Gentile sinners do not need Jesus' active obedience. Some are sure that sinners have no need for Jesus to positively uphold the law for them to be justified because there is no longer any law to be concerned with. Law was a Jewish thing. But here's the thing. When asked, when you ask those same people about texts like 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, uh, you get you get this, uh, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe kind of moment. And I say that because 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 tells us sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So if we no longer have law, we no long, longer have sin. So the argument collapses. But again, we have this uh, aversion to all things law. We have this ignorance of the Bible and of theology. And oftentimes it's even from Bible teachers. Sin is lawlessness. So if there is no such thing as lawlessness, then there is no such thing as sin. So much for Christians thinking that law is irrelevant in the New Testament, right? Objectors are likewise fond of saying that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And they cite Galatians chapter two, verse 16, which is, I just read the citation or Romans chapter three, verse 20. My question to you, listener is, is this true? Well, it's certainly tr true. It's a quotation from Galatians. It is true that no sinner that Paul is talking to or about could ever be justified by the works of the law. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Remember they're in Adam, but the requirement of righteousness for justification remains. Jesus and Jesus alone is justified by his obedience, which leads to the justification of all those who trust in him. And that takes us back to our discussion of first Timothy chapter three, verse 16. So absolutely Galatians two sixteen is true, but Paul is talking to sons and daughters of Adam. Jesus does in fact meet the requirement. Jesus in fact does obey God's law perfectly so that there can be imputed righteousness. So there can truly be justification. We've got to get this straight in our minds. Sometimes I like to provoke people and say salvation is by works, true or false. And people say false. And I say, you better think longer about that. Jesus didn't come here and do nothing. Jesus came here and acted throughout his whole life. Jesus is the one who earns righteousness for us so that we can be justified. Do this and live. Going back to our text in Luke, Jesus did this so that we might live. 
well, maybe we'll come up for a, a, a fresh breath of fresh air. I can't even say it. Thank you for listening to the Pactum. Thank you for listening to this episode on the active obedience of Christ. You can perhaps help us to reach other people by giving us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, you could also give us a review wherever you happen to listen. And you can also follow us on Instagram, the Pactum Theology. Uh, You could tag us there as well. Maybe take a picture of the episode and share it with others. Uh, Also, Twitter is, our Twitter handle is at the Pactum. You can also find us online. uh, Thepactum.org is our website. Let's keep going with these objections. I find the objections objections actually very helpful because they help us to defend the doctrine and understand it better and understand what it is and what it is not. So now let's talk about the next objection, which is that the righteousness imputed that the Bible talks about is not Christ's. Some say, well, yes, there is imputation, there is righteousness, but it's not Christ's righteousness that is imputed. Those who are bent on rejecting the active obedience of Christ are fond, actually, of pointing out that the Bible does not actually say that Christ's righteousness is imputed. After all, 2 Corinthians 5 does not say that Christ's righteousness is imputed, but, quote, the righteousness of God, end quote. That's in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. Hmm, how should we respond? This exploit, I'm going to call it, misleads those who are not watchful to note the context, the context which says, quote, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Yes, it's from God, but from God in Christ. That's verse 19. What God is doing and providing is through Christ. And Christ is the righteous one. Second Peter chapter one, verse one, who fulfills all righteousness. Matthew three, verse 15. Text speaking of the righteousness of God being given like Romans three twenty two must be understood according to their context and referring to the source of the gift that is freely given to sinners by grace through faith in Christ. A similar variation by deniers of the act of obedience of Christ suggests that what is imputed to sinners is Christ's essential righteousness. In other words, his divine attribute. This is contrary to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5. Obviously, think with me about this, where he spoke of Christ's actions. The, quote, act of righteousness leads to justification. That's verse 18 of Romans 5. And his obedience secures righteousness before God. Verse 19, it's an act and it is obedience. We're not talking about attribute or essential righteousness. Clearly not. The notion of Christ's essential righteousness, his divine attribute becoming ours would amount to heresy. And plenty of others have pointed this out throughout church history. Perhaps if we were not ignorant of historical theology, as sadly so many are, uh, we wouldn't be getting this wrong. We'd be getting it right. So you can see John Owen for this, but I'm going to offer a great quotation from Francis Turretin on this matter. And again, if we would just read a bit uh, a bit broader uh, and a, be a bit more careful, we would be seeing these things. Here's Francis Turretin. 
However, there is no need to remark that by the righteousness of Christ, we do not understand here the essential righteousness of God dwelling in us. And then he refers to Osiander and fellow heretics uh, and their false teachings. Uh, He talked about their error, which was exploded and perished with its author. He goes on to say, Turton does, that righteousness could not be communicated to us subjectively and formally, which is an essential attribute of God without our becoming God's also. And the scripture everywhere refers the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us to the obedience of his life and the suffering of his death by which he answered the demands of the law and perfectly fulfilled it. If we had need of an infinite righteousness, it should not be such in essence, but only in value and merit. If Christ is Jehovah, our righteousness, and if he is made to us righteousness by the father, this is not said with respect to essential righteousness, but to the obedience which is imputed to us for righteousness. This is called the righteousness of God. Why? He answers, because it belongs to the divine person and so is of infinite value and is highly pleasing and acceptable to God. By this righteousness, then we understand the entire obedience of Christ, of his life, as well as of his death, active as well as passive, as we have already proved in another section. So there's a great example of someone who's already dealt with this heresy. And so when professors of supposed conservative Bible believing, supposed reform seminaries promote the exact same thing as this, uh, we should be, we, we should be able to say that doesn't pass the, uh, the pact sniff test because it actually fails and it's already been addressed. And it shows that we probably ought not be teachers because we're not learned. Let's move on to another attack or another place or another group that attacks the active obedience of Christ. And that would be those who say that justification is only forgiveness. I've heard this with my own ears uh, from a local pastor who went to the quote unquote right seminary. And it's essentially all that he promoted. uh, And he would call himself a reformed Bible teacher, I believe a great expositor. Okay. He wouldn't call himself great, but he would call himself an expository preacher. And he defined justification as only justification, justification as only forgiveness. So Piscator 1546 to 1625 is known in church history for his deviation from the Protestant standard and saying it's only for forgiveness. He taught that justification only provided forgiveness While it is true that sinners are in desperate need of forgiveness and that such is wonderfully found in the work of Christ, something else is needed as well as something else is provided. Sinners are not only left guiltless before God who requires the positive upholding of his law in loving God and neighbor. Found in justification is the declaration of God that sinners are not only forgiven, but also positively righteous in God's sight. This can only happen because of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ in upholding the law. Piscator's teaching, his teaching was condemned at the synods of Gap 1603 and Rochelle 1607, and he eventually becomes a full-blown Arminian. And it's no wonder. Let's not be 
Piscator-ish in our theology that we promote that denigrates the greatness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then for the objectors that perhaps you've all been waiting for or not, and that would be the objection that comes from dispensationalism, because dispensationalism, I should say, by and large, historically, has stood against the active obedience of Christ. I think we're going to spend a little bit more time here than on some of the other ones because it has been such a huge driving force in the last century or so, and certainly in recent days in America and beyond. So it is a popular system. Dispensationalism is. Dispensational hostility toward the act of obedience of Christ can be traced way back to the one who's known even by dispensationalists as their founder. Sometimes people object to that, but Tommy Ice is a dispensationalist, and he would say that John Nelson Darby was the first person to formulate a systematic expression of dispensationalism, at least. So he's a founder in that sense. Uh, John Hanna, who was a dispensationalist at Dallas Seminary, would say something similar. He says it originates with Darby. It's enshrined in the Schofield Reference Bible. So that's not quoting an anti-dispensationalist. That is actually from John Hanna. So... If you go back to Darby, what you end up having, this is 1800 to 1882. So Darby, Plymouth Brethren leader, John Nelson Darby, J.N.D. Darby, uh, he has a Bible translation, as a matter of fact, but he labeled, get this, he labeled the active obedience of Christ, quote, a mischievous fable, end of quote, and something he did, quote, not see how any intelligent Christian could accept. So no intelligent Christian can accept the active obedience of Christ doctrine, according to Darby. So you see it's oil and water. Um, the, the history of dispensationalism, at least its founder was radically adamantly opposed to the active obedience of Christ, which is problematic from what my perspective, given scripture. I would also want to note how fellow brethren historians have pointed out that Darby erred dangerously in his understanding of Jesus. So I'm, I'm referencing here a fascinating book called A History of the Brethren Movement, Its Origins, Its Worldwide Development, and Its Significance for the Present Day. This is by F. Roy Code, C-O-A-D. Very enlightening book, and they really go. He really goes after Darby. The forward of the book, or a preface, or something like that, is written by F.F. F. Bruce, a well-known uh, New Testament commentary commentator and New Testament scholar. So I think the book has some credibility if Bruce is endorsing it. Darby says that Christ's righteousness as a man under law is not spoken of at all. That's a quotation. Christ's righteousness as a man under law is not spoken of at all. End of quotation. Not only that, something like that leads him to promote this strange notion of believers being, quote, brought into the participation of this divine and perfect righteousness. So all of a sudden we're getting into this kind of divine, perfect righteousness. Uh, it, it seems to be, uh, again, divine attribute sort of thing, which we've already discussed, which is problematic. It, it, it's his failure to accurately see Jesus as the true human who fulfills the requirements of the law vicariously. And Darby ends up ends, ending up sounding something like Osiander, the heretic. Again, Jesus is the God man. And we 
emphasize and teach both. But with Darby, it seems that he's lost perspective of the significance of the reality of the humanity of Jesus, which is why Brethren scholar F.F. Bruce, 1910 to 1990, once labeled the likes of Darby's deviant Christology as, and I quote, the besetting heresy of evangelical Christians. Perhaps we'll have to do an episode of a pactum on Darby. Maybe instead of marching with Machen, we'll call it dancing with Darby or something like that, because there are so many strange things about this man and strange things about his life. He may have been brilliant, uh, but when you read the book by code, it's rather enlightening how so many of uh, the brethren want to distance themselves from Darby. Well, I wish dispensationalists would distance themselves from him because his Christology seems all messed up. His perspective on lots of things seems so messed up. So it's no wonder he rejects this doctrine. And it's no wonder that so many who actually do follow him reject it as well. I was so shocked to find out that so many people that I once esteemed denied the act of obedience of Christ. And then there was this aha moment that so many of them come, came from a brethren background. Oh, Darby dispensationalism brethren. And that does bring us to another opponent who of the act of obedience of Christ, who is dispensational and influential and brethren. And that would be Harry Ironside, Harry Ironside, 1876 to 1951, another notable dispensationalist from the Plymouth brethren. And he was vehement in his opposition to the act of obedience of Christ. He went so far in rejecting the act of obedience of Christ as to state that quote, nowhere does scripture say Christ's righteousness is imputed end of quotation. And I want to say, are you, are you joking? Are you kidding me? So while few today may know his name or his influence, maybe you do, maybe you don't, uh, he hugely influential. So he pastored Moody Memorial church where we eventually have Moody Bible Institute. So he's influential there, a prolific writer back in the day taught at Dallas theological seminary. I think, uh, don't quote me, but you will. He was offered a professorship there, but I know he taught there. Uh, he received an honorary doctorate from doctorate from Wheaton. And I suppose the list could go on when it would come to his influence. We could talk about Lewis Berry Chafer, 1871 to 1952. We could talk about others who came after him. Robert Leitner, 1931, 2018. Uh, I was given that book when I was in seminary. And uh, deniers of active obedience. So influential, Lewis Berry Chafer, founder and founding president of Dallas Theological Seminary. So it would make sense that you'd find it there as well. So thankfully, 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 I have to add this. Thankfully, there are some dispensationalists who affirm the act of obedience of Christ. But I have to say they seem to be betraying their own history because of what has gone before them because of Darby. It actually makes more sense to me now uh, on the other side of things to say, oh, it makes sense. It's your contra dispensationalism if you affirm it. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for people who are, but they're not actually towing the party. Uh, they're not towing the party line. So you might ask yourself the question, uh, listener, why the hostility to the standard Protestant doctrine by dispensationalism? by dispensationalists. Well, starting with Darby, aggression arose against traditional Protestant doctrines that had become settled confessional norms. Darby is known for his mysticism 
impulsive rationality. This is according to, to, to those who are part of his own movement. And he believed that the entire church, Darby believed that the entire church, all of Christianity was apostate and that the reformation only preserved the apostasy. If that sounds like LDS or something like that, uh, like Joseph Smith, I, I would, I think it does. So he has to fix it. He has to fix it because it's all perverse. It's all corrupt. And I have to say that such a conclusion ended up leading him to have radical views, reckless disregard for the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who'd come before him. It's, It's biblicism and biblicism is not positive. It's not good. Check out our episode on that. It's Darby and others who follow him that utilize this kind of biblicism that trashes the fruit of serious theological debates over matters like imputation and justification, and they end up seeking to start from scratch. Add to this another prominent reason for the hostility against the act of obedience of Christ from some dispensationalists. We have an allergy, what I'll call an allergy to all things law. That's at least perhaps how RC would have said it, so I kind of like that. An allergy to all things law. And I think part of the problem here is even if the word itself is not used, the word law, that doesn't mean there aren't legal concepts, legal ideas involved, things like justification, which means to be declared righteous and to be declared righteous means to be declared a law keeper. So, and I think this goes back to when you have a system with seven dispensations and one dispensation is called the dispensation of law and it's gone now, according to dispensationalism, well, now law is gone. And so they'll, they'll say, and then you have a, a dispensation called grace. And so if you have a dispensation called grace, then you have no more law. And they errantly end up saying earlier that there is no grace before law. Not all dispensationalists, but some certainly have like Schofield. So it becomes very problematic. When we talk about law, we don't mean Mosaic law unless we mean Mosaic law. But there's been law all along Again, go back to Luke chapter 10. We had a lengthy discussion about that, if that would be helpful. And also know that if the Bible says something like this, and it does, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. Stop and think about what that means and look at the text in context. A whole book was written about that being and misusing it by a dispensationalist. Romans 6.15 is an important text. It does, in fact, say this very thing. We are not under law, but under grace. But what does it mean? Believers are not, uh, here, here's what it means. Believers are not under the law for our justification. Clearly, that's the, the intent given the context of Romans 1 to 5. In other words, our legal standing before God does not depend upon our adherence to the law because it has been graciously given to us because of the work of Christ. But what Paul most certainly does not mean is that law or legal categories don't exist. For that matter, believers are to present themselves, and I'm going to quote here from Romans 6, to God as instruments for righteousness. Ah, and we know what righteousness means. It means adherence to law. See, it wouldn't make any sense if we no longer have any relationship to God's law, to God as instruments for righteousness. And by so doing, they are called to follow God's law in pursuing spiritual maturity. 
recalling that righteousness is adherence to law as has been discussed. Well, there are other dispensationalists who reject the act of obedience of Christ because they fear that affirming it means affirming the greater scheme, the greater system of federal representation, also known as covenant representation, also known as covenant theology. And we should know that it genuinely seems as if they are so fearful of anything that may get them even within the realm of covenant theology that they will affirm, I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it, heresy to avoid it. Heresy. How in the world could we rather choose the imputation of a divine attribute over and against something that, uh-oh, if we affirm federal headship, we're affirming covenantal headship. Foidos means federal. Foidos means covenant. Oh, if we do that, that belongs to covenant theology. And the reality is it does. It actually does. But covenant theology is not the boogeyman. We'll do a whole episode on covenant theology, but you can go back to our pactum responsum episode and we make some comments about this absolutely crazy sauce, crazy days to be so afraid of covenant theology, which has everything to do with active obedience and has everything to do with Jesus being the federal head, the covenantal head who perfectly obeys the law for us so that we can have his righteousness imputed to us so that we can be justified freely by God's grace But we are now swimming in the waters of covenant theology, which is not to be feared. It's to be embraced because it's actually where it finds its natural habitat. Well, let's wrap up the the episode because we are long. We need Mike Grimes here to hold me to task and to keep me moving, I guess. But let's go ahead and end by acknowledging that this really is an important matter because it actually is a gospel matter. So let's not forget that here. I'll quote from Richard Belcher Jr. I don't think he's exaggerating either when he says, if not for Christ, active obedience and righteousness received through faith alone, no one would receive eternal life. And if you don't like hearing from someone who is a reformed guy, I'll quote a Baptist to you. Here is. Augustus Hopkins Strong, 1836-1921, he remarks that neither Christ's active obedience alone nor Christ's obedient passion alone can save us. These are good, stout affirmations, and they should be stout affirmations because if we don't have the truth about Christ right, we don't actually end up having the gospel, and we most certainly don't have assurance. And how can we have assurance if we don't know that Christ is the one who fulfilled the obligations for us? Thank you so much for joining us today on The Pactum. We really appreciate it. I'm glad to be able to have some influence in your life for good and for the glory of Christ. These are great days to be living for His glory and for His honor because there are so many needs. So may the Lord bless you as you go. We will see you here next time on The Pactum.